Blog Talk Radio. Shout out 
to a fellow Grand Unified member, MC Brooks. You want to help me uh, wish Seagats a happy birthday? Happy birthday, homie. <laughs> homie, son is getting old. It's probably past his bedtime. You'll have to catch this on the archives tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? He is. I, I figured, but it's okay. It's, and even still, on the archive, he's gonna know that we love him. And thank you so much for being one of the founding members of Grand Unified. And so for that, I have something quick for you. Everybody likes this song. Big shout out to the guest, founding member of Grand Unified Theory Collective, and we appreciate you. Then to have a world party on the day you came to be happy members and the other half of Ryu Ken Versus. Don't forget to check out their album, which should be coming out soon. And yeah, so that was it. I want to make sure I gave him a shout out. <laughs> um, so we have a lot to talk about, and we're going to talk about it. And so while we get everybody set up on the line, set up in the chat, we're going to just take a quick break. I have a song here, one of our fellow Grand Unified Theory members. Um, we have... Uh, Tombstone, the dead man. I'm sure everybody remembers him, loves him. He has a great song called 1%. Here it is now. So apparently, there are two sets of rules for the people in this country. One set for the ultra-wealthy and the other set for the average citizen. Because the shit they got away with, if we'd have done its equivalent, they'd have locked our asses up. I don't believe the malarkey, scream by the oligarchy Guess if you're rich and I'm poor, then it makes it cool to mind me I also love the way they scream out ass warfare The moment that we know this shit taking way more than your share These politicians always playing down your influence Thinking that I'm stupid, but truth is I'm seeing right through it These mobile masters of the universe, the Lord know the resources Leaving the rest of us with no resources Why I don't want to hear you talk about a class war Until they see us mad enough to ratchet up a great job Until the savages start ravaging your palaces And greet you in the street and beat your ass and take your until that happens, all of this is only conversation Remember, your station's predicated on the people's patience And their decision to wallow in all their ignorance And pass all themselves with distractions so they don't give a shit Hey, stupid, you really think they care about you? You think they share the single tears I just feel without you? Hey, stupid, I think you're lacking common sense You're only really here to benefit the 1% Hey, stupid, that's right, you said that you ignore them That don't matter, cause you still be bending over for them Hey, stupid, you might want an investigation And find out how they all Killing you with legislation The middle class is so violently getting smashed Body these politicians bend over to kiss the ass By their corporate masses, those bastards spend a lot of millions Sometimes I picture them twirling their mustaches like villains I'm not feeling the optics of the sick, demented scenario Outsourcing occupations disrupt all the cash flow It's probably a fact that none of y'all are coming back Financially trapped while the wealthy count all their money stacks What kind of businessman has money on the campaign Unless they just invest in all some shit they plan to maintain No need to imagine or go invent conspiracies to make the Observations 
on some shit that we can clearly see. Fuck all that patriotic rhetoric they feed in you. Really take a look at the current system that's bleeding you. The people that cheated were classified to big to fail. And all of you got mad, but not one of them fuckers went to jail. Got hey, it. stupid, you really think they care about you? You think they shed a single tear inside their head without you? Hey, stupid, I think you're lacking common sense. You're only really here to benefit to 1%. Hey, stupid, that's right, you said that you ignore them. That don't matter, because you still be bending over for them. Hey, stupid, you might want an investigation. Find out how they are killing you with legislation. Hello? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh wow. Hey, that was that was a great moment of silence there. Yeah. That was yeah. great. That was a great moment of dead air. Oh man, this has just been a crazy, crazy show. Uh, some technical difficulties keep taking place. I and think this uh, is a sign from God. Kidding. <laughs> <laughs> We've been having. Yeah. It might be because we've been having trouble since the beginning, since before. <laughs> yep. But it it is what it is. We're gonna keep it moving. Um, actually, I have a um surprise guest that's gonna be calling in in a few minutes. Um, he apparently crashed an event called uh, I don't know what the event was called, but I guess they were trying to prove that God is real. So he apparently right. crashed that event. Yeah, and so I was thinking, he said he just called me. He was so excited about it. So I told him to give us a call. We're going to, maybe we could, he can give us a report. He's from, his name is Bruce. He's from Citizens for a Sustainable Future. We actually had them on a few episodes ago when they discussed the Dream Defenders uh, rally that they were at, the march that they were at, or the sit-in they were at a few episodes ago. So he's going to be coming back and joining us and talking about his experience. So I thought that would be a good little surprise to add into the show. What do you guys think? Cool. Yeah, that'd be dope. I agree. So first, let's get to the discussions. So first off, one of the biggest topics that has come up this week or the past, yeah, the past week has been this Navy shooting. And I don't know if you guys are already up on that. I know people on the, my panelists are. But, yeah, so there was a Navy shooting, a shooting on Navy base. He was 
apparently, and this is the new stuff that's come out about the shooting. He apparently had mental health issues that had gone, uh, that had actually been addressed in the VA. And still, this man was able to legally get a weapon, and he was contracted with the Navy to do some work, and when he was there, he decided to go on a shooting rampage. And the, the thing that's up for question, though, is back to the background checks. And there have been a lot of division, even amongst uh, Democrats, even amongst liberals, regarding background checks or regarding gun control overall. And I just want to get your take. Do you think mental health background checks are necessary or background checks at all are necessary? Or is that still infringing upon the rights of people to carry a firearm? And what do you think? I mean, definitely I think background checks should be done. We do background checks for so many things. Um, and, and you know, so many things are completely irrelevant. A background check is something completely superfluous. It has nothing to do really with the job at hand. Um, but when you are putting a firearm, something that is used to hunt and or kill, into someone's hands, I mean, um, moments of temporary insanity or crimes of passion or undiagnosed um, mental issues aside, um, a lot of crimes can be prevented or could have been prevented if people who have a history of mental who had a history of mental illness or who had criminal records had got had been background checked before getting a license to carry a firearm. Um, you can't prevent all crime, but we should go out of our way to prevent some crimes. The fact of the matter is. You can kill someone with with a you can kill people with a knife too, but once I see one person being stabbed, I'm going to get out of the way. Not not it's not the same story with a gun. Right, and I, I agree with that. What do you think, Anthony or MC? Um, absolutely. Oh, you can go, ahead, brother. Yeah, I think I mean I think the background checks are definitely a necessity. The problem. Um, with this situation here, I think that, that, you know, people who are defenders of of gun rights can somewhat rightfully say that people who are trying to push background checks on the back of this issue are politicizing it because a background check would not have necessarily turned up anything because there was nothing to check for in the shooter's background. Right. Anthony, what do you say? Oh, that was Anthony. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry, MC. <laughs> That's all good. Um, I believe that absolutely necessary. Uh, and just to kind of um, piggyback off what Emmeline was saying earlier, that, of course, obviously we can't prevent all instances of crime, and we we can't even prevent weapons from getting into the hands of people uh, who really desire to get them. However, those who do who do you know obtain them legally, I feel like they should they sh- they should have to. Uh, I think we've had enough instances over the past uh, since this country's inception. I guess you could go back to we've had enough instances of people who have legally obtained weapons, but obviously we're not are not in a condition where they a should have had them or b. Um, um, been able to to use them even if, even if they had them, so I think they're absolutely I think they're absolutely you know necessary. We may not be able to prevent everyone from getting them, but if we can prevent a couple people who have malicious intent, then by all means we should we should take those steps. 
I 100% agree with that. I, I really, and I'm actually for all those checks, mental health checks, background checks. I mean, I, I'm not really sure what some people who are opposing what their issue is with it. Um, and if anybody's listening and they have opposition to it, please feel free to call in and let us know. Um, well, I mean, I've heard some of the arguments against, um, you know, background checks and things like that, and they're usually things in the vein of um, it's an invasion of privacy, um, or um, you know, you know, they say, well, it's my constitutional right to bear arms, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, we have the right to a lot of things. And a lot right. of rights can get taken away when you commit crimes. For instance, if you go to prison, you lose the right to vote um, because we don't want criminals um, having a say in, um, in, you know, in democracy. I think it should be the same with, with guns. Yeah, you have the right to bear arms, but that right should only extend as far as your mental capacity and stability um, the fact of the matter is your right to bear arms isn't more, it will never be more important than another person's right to live right right plus right. A, a lot of the people who oppose don't even, don't ever offer an alter, an alternative like they they're opposed to background checks and mental health checks but they don't offer you know any other, like how, another way that they that they believe that we could go about curbing the violence that comes about through anyone being able to obtain a weapon. But yeah, I think absolutely. a lot of that comes from the idea that, well, if everybody has weapons, then nobody's going to want to, everybody's going to think twice before they violate another person. That's like mm-hmm. the, that's the rhetoric that's often pushed by the by NRA and NRA advocates, is that, well, if everybody's armed, then we're all safe. What do you guys think about that argument? Uh, <laughs> no. No. Um, no. Yeah. Well, I mean, the first thing is the first thing. The first reason why that's completely ridiculous is because the fact that you have gun doesn't cancel out my gun. It's not like mathematics, where right. if I have minus two and positive two, then it's going to equal zero. It, my nope. gun is canceled out just because you have a gun. Now you're just going to get a bigger one. If you exactly. about that too. <laughs> or I'll just get more bullets than you. Um, I mean, it's like the Japanese like Battle Royale. I don't know if anyone's ever seen that movie. It's a really great film. Um, they put a whole great bunch name. of kids. Yeah, they put a whole bunch of kids on an island together, and they're like, "Here, everybody have a weapon, and the weapons are as bootleg as trash can lids, and as high end yeah. as you know assault rifles." And they're like, "Make sure you're the last one standing in three days, and you get to go home." And even the people with the the most weak, flimsy little weapons have made it work because what happened is even the kids who didn't want to be killers, and I guess in this, in the, for the sake of this analogy, the Americans who don't want to take the, you know, assume their right to their arms, who don't want a firearm in their home, even the people that didn't want to utilize their weapons became so paranoid because everyone around them had weapons. If, you have, I, yeah. if, if at least one right. person has weapons, you're not going to have peace. Like, <laughs> if I know all of my neighbors are armed, it doesn't matter if I'm armed or not. I'm always going to be suspicious of them. Right. Yeah, I, I, I totally feel that 100%. And, you know, I, I don't understand too many people. I don't understand the perspective that the more weapons we have, the safer we are. Because the, we, it leaves the assumption that there, everybody needs to have a weapon. Like everyone should have access to a deadly piece of metal 
that can kill you. Like, that makes no sense to me. That means that we have it in our homes. That, that means that it's a lot more access to them by the people that we claim we don't want to have access to them, which is, quote, unquote, the bad people. Like, the things like that just don't make any sense to me. And I try to rationalize certain things because I do think that, on some level, safety is important, and me being a female, live alone, you know, I do constantly think about my safety, and I have thought about arming myself if necessary, especially since I don't necessarily live in the best of neighborhoods. But I always think about all the statistics that show the, the people who are often killed by guns are people who live in the same house mm-hmm. <laughs> as where, where the gun is. So, I mean, this year alone, I read so many stories about children five and under who has accidentally right. killed people with a gun. I mean, mm-hmm. even even if, you know, I were okay with having guns in my home and I'm putting, I'm, I'm, I in this case would be like the typical American who doesn't feel the need to be armed. Even if that person felt the need to be armed, not only do you now have, you know, the paranoia of someone else using their gun, the moment in time when you might have to use your gun against someone, but the day that one of your family members or your children gets their hands on the gun, and something goes horribly, horribly wrong. Nothing ever goes right in a situation where a small child finds a gun. I agree. I 100% agree with that. So we're going to – I'm sorry, did you have something else you wanted to add to that? No, 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 no. Oh, okay. So we're going to go to the next topic, and this is about – this is more of a hip-hop topic, but it still relates in in a way. Um, It's about the shooting of – seven-year-old Ayanna Stanley Jones. She was shot and killed um, by police officers who were busting in, in the house to get some uh, someone else in the house, another suspect, a drug suspect. And while they were looking for that suspect, they threw a flash grenade in, uh, in one of the rooms, and there was movement, and the police shot at that movement, which happened to be the seven-year-old Ayanna Stanley Jones. And because in in that which was a tragic story, I think right now the uh, jury, uh, well, right now there's, it, was, it was considered a mistrial, and they're gonna retry him, but uh, retry the officer that killed him, which killed her, which is Joseph Weekly, and uh, in in dedication to Diana Jones, J Cole released a song, I mean released a uh, video to his song Crooked Smile, and I want to post the link in the chat, even though people aren't really in there yet. <laughs> But posted in there for those who are interested. Um, so he so he, he he put this video out. I don't know if you guys on the panel have gotten a chance to see the video yet. Have you guys seen it? Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, I have. Yeah. So, and what did you think of the video? And what did you think about the dedication? You know, I always feel some kind of way um, when celebrities, whether they be um, um, you know musical recording artists or um, or or actors or even like visual artists like painters or or do dedications. A part of me feels like people need to be more aware of this. This should have been national news, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, this was a horrible tragedy. This was a gross lapse of judgment. Um, this child was killed because of you know um, police misconduct, pretty much. But at the same time, every time I see one of these dedications, maybe I'm jaded. I just feel some kind of way like, oh, this person is trying to um, do something as far as their image or trying to get money 
I'm trying to change your image, trying to reach a, a previously unreachable um, demographic with this. I always feel this sort of thing is never really from the heart. I mean, did he ever did he say anything about donating any of the money from the single to um, the girl's family, um, you know, or anything like that? Like this is. It just always looks me a little raw every time someone does a dedication right after someone dies, and there's no mention of that person's family or anything like that. I totally understand. Well, she just keep in mind she didn't just die. Like this didn't just happen. This was a while ago. This is an old story. So if he, so if that were the case, he could have. I mean, I'm going to push back, and I'm sorry, but um, if this were, if that were what you're saying were the case, wouldn't he have hopped on one of the more recent cases? To make a, to make that message. This is a very old case. This isn't actually yeah. one of the stories that I would say has been even at the top in the past year or so. So I, there would yeah. really be very little benefit for him to uh, use her as a way to, to change his image when that's not even the hot story right now. So I, that's my right. I actually completely disagree with you on that. But I don't know who else wants to jump in. No, I was gonna, I was going to say well, just speaking um, as a musician myself. It's kind of that's kind of the double-edged sword and kind of the risk we take when we, when a lot of musicians attempt to kind of um, bring attention to a story. You know, it's kind of like a lot of people often wonder if that if that's something that that we're being completely genuine about. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm of the opinion. I mean, I love the song and I love the video, and I, and I appreciate J Cole. For uh, for using his platform to bring attention to the story or to use it as a dedication, because I think as far you know as being an African American in this country and you know seeing how we are often represented in the media and seeing which one of our stories often gets told, I've, I've pretty much come to the conclusion that it's up to us to tell our stories and to bring attention to things and to um and tell the stories of of people who are either unable to or don't have the platform to have their story be heard and because of that and aside from the fact that I like J Cole I I like him a little bit more and I respect him a little bit more for doing this mm-hmm. for that reason it's up to us and to tell our stories I mean like and I to, said before and, and I to have them be heard that's weird. I just always have a weird feeling about when people do that because, like you said, um, when you have a certain level of fame and notoriety, people always question the motive. So I'm always in that, like, skeptic box, like, hmm, I wonder what motivated this kind of mindset. True. I, and yeah. I understand. But I think, I, think, I think far too often, I think sometimes that, you know, people forget that, you know, entertainers and, and, and artists and musicians that they're they're people too. And where while oftentimes sometimes uh their content may not reflect uh things that they may be interested in. You know, this mm-hmm. may this was a story that obviously is, is from just from what I can tell, it seems like it yeah. touched him enough that he wanted to he wanted to use his his uh, his platform to dedicate his video to her. Yeah, his mom, his, her mom is actually on record saying she appreciated what uh, what J Cole did. She tweeted something yesterday. Actually, said I really appreciate what J Cole has done. 
Oh, well, the family appreciates it. <laughs> I need to get on Twitter. I really do. <laughs> there we go. I'm just, get on I'm Twitter. Just afraid I mean, of, if, like, if, I'm just afraid of If the family is down, time. if the family is all for it, I have no argument. Yeah. I mean, I, I understand I, I understand the skepticism. I, I, I totally understand because, you know, I, I do think some people ha- may have done that. In this particular case, I don't, I don't, I don't really think that it's just him trying to piggyback or gain any any further attention to himself. Right, and and, and I also just am just like you know I do also feel that way sometimes. I mean, I felt like that with some of the Trayvon Martin uh, things that were, you know, a lot of the celebrities that were support supposedly supportive of the tra- of Trayvon Martin's family and all of that. I don't know. I, I, some of that stuff kind of rubbed me the wrong way. So I do, which I do understand what you're saying. I did, but also like MC said, I don't necessarily succeed in this case. We have some callers on the line. Uh, call one three. Your mic is open. Plus, who you are and where you're calling from. Hmm. Yeah, I'm Corey. I'm calling from Detroit. Just listening Hello. to the show. What's going on, everybody? Okay, I was uh, done much, man. I was just listening in and uh, just wanted to fill you guys in on the uh, Ayanna Jones case just a little bit, just to kind of let you guys know what happened here. That happened on the east side of Detroit. The story is actually that happened back in May of 2010, I believe it was. Right. So the story is a little old, but, uh, you know, First 48 was here, and they were filming the capture of a fugitive who was staying in the house, who had killed a 16-year-old boy the day before, I believe it was, for just looking at him. And he was staying at the house with her father. They were in a two-family flat, and he was staying upstairs. And, you know, I kind of got a different feeling about the case. Well, first of all, let me say, I don't have a problem with what J. Cole did as far as uh, the video and dedicating it to the family and all of that. But um, I just think it was bad on both sides, you know, because they didn't do enough surveillance to know that that, that, that Ayana was staying there with her father for the weekend. But it's funny because (laughs) I kind of understand maybe the mindset to a degree of the way that they came in the house because they're looking for somebody who killed a kid in the middle of the day, you know. So I could understand it on that point, but they didn't do surveillance. The cops should be in jail and all of that. It's It, it was just bad. It was bad on all sides, you know. So the moral of the story is don't let Fugitive stay in your house when you have your daughter for the weekend. <laughs> don't let Fugitive stay in your right. But it was it was bad and it was bad here. It was bad here during that time. It mm-hmm. was. It was but there was a lot of negligence. I mean, there's a there's a part where that's that's negligent. Let's just be honest. That's yeah. negligent. If they, yeah. if they don't, yeah. you can't you cannot bust in someone's house and 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 just assume that there are no children there. There there are no and even if let's say it wasn't even a child that was killed. It doesn't matter. There could there are innocent people there. And you just bust in and you throw a grenade and a flash grenade and you just shoot people. Like that's that's completely negligent and, and irresponsible. I mean, if your job is to go into those kind of places, I would think that you would have, like you said, Corey, do some surveillance and accurate surveillance of of what you're attacking. So um, we have another caller, caller three one five. Your mic is open. Tell us who you are and where you're calling from. 
Deanna, and I'm calling from New York. What up, Deanna? Deanna? What up? Hey, Did you want to You want us to weigh in? No, I'm just listening in. My daughter's still up, so I don't want her talking and stuff in the background. I was just listening <laughs> oh. in and saying hello. Oh, you pressed one. <laughs> yeah, I just want to say hello real quick. <laughs> oh, well, thank you, Deanna, and I'm glad you're listening. Thank you so much. All right, guys. So I, I wanted to kind of get back to the J. Cole, um, at, least, at least this point. Do you guys think that this is something that we should see a lot more of in hip-hop or from artists? I'm not saying that it doesn't happen because it has happened. We're not even saying it has to be dedications, but just addressing these kind of issues um, in videos in this way. What do you guys yes. think? Uh, definitely. Yes. Definitely. Like I said, it's up to us to to tell our stories and to, to you know, make sure that, that the people are informed about, you know, the, the various injustices that have gone on, and you know, a lot, a lot, a lot plenty, uh, the music aspect is, is a perfect way to do it because everyone listens to music, and despite like, despite um, what's the word I'm looking for, how much, um, like I said, despite how much uh, an artist's content may not r- reflect uh, how politically active or whatnot that they are, I feel like they, too, can still do some good by bringing attention to these various stories and injustices that happen in our communities. So I I would love to see more of it. I think it's important. Do you think it's, do you think we're going to see more of it? I mean, I mean, just to be real, and I think we had actually had a show on this not too long ago where we were talking about the new generation of hip-hop right now, and do you think we're going to see more of this? Because I think even lyrically, a lot of these artists, newer artists, have kind of stepped up more than they have in, let's say, you know, was it 2003 to about 2010. <laughs> so do you guys think we're going to see more of this in addition to the uh, people raising the bar a little bit more as far as lyricism? I mean, yeah, I, I hope so. I think I, I'm, I'm seeing, um, and this I, this is why I haven't listened personally. I haven't really listened to hip hop or um, or rap since probably the early 2000s. Anything I have heard, it's been something that's been super hyped up, and it was kind of like peer pressured on me, or I heard in passing um, on the radio, um, because I felt like it not only had um, hip hop lost its soul, it also lost its brain. But I feel like a lot of the newer, I feel like a lot of the, I feel like a lot of the newer talent, you know, are are pretty intelligent, and um, and you know, um, you know, you guys know how I feel about strong vernacular, and I feel that a lot of them are very um, socially and politically aware, and we might be entering into an era where it's cool to be informed again. Right. True. I think it's getting better. What is? What do you think? I heard somebody else. Was, I'm not sure if it was MC or Anthony because I mean, it I, sounds so I, I, don't, I don't listen. I don't listen to the radio all that much. But um, I mean, I, I've never had you know even when people were saying that hip hop was going downhill, I've never had any shortage of good hip hop to listen to. Of course. You know, people yeah, say I you know, know you nothing about what's on the radio though. But you know what's funny? I actually stopped even listening because I wasn't really a big radio listener during that time. In fact, when I was in college, 
that's probably when I got more into the internet and finding new artists and things like that. But even still, after a certain point, there were things even online I wasn't interested in anymore. It just wasn't that good. Like, it, they were okay, and there were some people here and there that came out. Um, but honestly, it hasn't been until the past, I want to say, couple of years I got back into it. Because I, I, even in the online and the underground scene, I felt like I was hearing a lot of whining. Like, oh, hip-hop sucks. Hip-hop sucks. Well, you're the artist. Make some good shit then. Like, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So that was so I, when, when that whole little era, and I think you know, remember, I think Nas came out with "Hip Hop Is Dead." And next thing you know, everybody's whining about hip hop, and I was just yeah, like, okay, I, I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear, you know, ten songs on your album about how much hip hop sucks, and people don't want to hear real lyrics, and people don't want to hear good hip hop. Well, then put some good shit out there and stop whining that your shit didn't sell. And you know, like seriously, that it just <laughs> that whole era started to bug me, and I kind of tuned out. What actually got me back in was Black Hippie. So, so I don't know. I don't. Mm-hmm. I can't really explain why, but it just did. Probably because they're from LA, and I was like, "What West Coast?" But it is <laughs> We have another caller. Caller four hundred four. Tell us who you are and where you're calling from. Uh, this is Mario. I'm calling out of Ocala, Florida, right now. Hi, Mario. Hi, Mario. Hey, you want to? You want to real quick? Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Didn't mean to cut you off. Um, I'll make this real quick because I'm trying to drive this trailer. But, uh, um, yeah, I feel the exact same way that you do, um, Vita. A lot of times I'm looking at it as though I'm like, yeah, we can sit here and bitch and complain about where hip-hop is going, but the fact that remain is times change, shit changes, taste change. You know, the stuff that you listen to, I used to listen to a lot of different hip-hop Back in the day, that same hip-hop doesn't play anymore. And so you have some of the older artists still trying to hang in there, and then sometimes they'll change their style, sometimes they won't. But the fact remains that you can't change the fact that the world moves on and finds something different to get into. I I can't stand most of I can't stand the radio. I can't stand the hip-hop on the radio, but you know what I'm saying? What I do, I just don't listen to the radio. You know, if I was an artist, I wouldn't make an entire album bitching about how hip-hop is dead and everything. And, I mean, commercialism and mainstream um, taste, they, you know what I'm saying, they, they're ruling the day. That's that's what's selling now. Now, you're, now that you're not the biggest thing, you have more integrity. Make your music and quit quit complaining. I, I'm with you. I'm 100% with you. 10%. So, speaking of, of hip-hop, and messages and images. Let's get into Don Lemon and Bill Cosby. Everyone's favorite like spokespeople. Um <laughs> so apparently Bill Cosby sat down with Don Lemon on CNN and he had some uh, interesting words to say about young black men. And uh well, for those of you guys who don't know, Don Lemon as well has said some things on uh in response to Bill O'Reilly in not even in response, in agreement with Bill O'Reilly regarding racial stereotypes. And uh, Don Lemon's response uh, or statement was, quote, in my estimation, he, talking about Bill O'Reilly, doesn't go far enough. Walking around with your ass and underwear showing is not okay. In fact, if it com- it comes from prison, when they take away belts from prisoners, they do they uh, they do so so they can make a weapon. And then it evolved into a role each prisoner would have during male-on-male prison sex. And so basically he's him 
sort of saying that sagging your pants is part of the reason why we we experience discrimination as black people. Um, and Bill Cosby said uh, on the show, if you drug these people, quote, if you drug these people and then you release them and there's no prescription for them to get to take to do some the same thing and they go back to the same place, now about this time, this is when you hear the, quote, no grows jump up and say, why don't you talk about the good things? So he's talking about his criticism that he's gotten and saying that we talk that he talks much about the negative in the black community. And so he calls the calls those that respond to him as no grows. And he says, Because the good things happen this is his continued response, quote, because the good things happen to be taken happen to be taking care of themselves pretty well. We're trying to help those genius. Those not genius, people who deserve, because they are human beings on this earth in the United States of America. We are trying to get them in a position so they will understand what to do. So he, according to Bill Cosby, he's just being positive when he makes criticisms about black people and he makes these statements saying, you know, pointing out the negatives in our community and also basically blaming us for the plight that we experience here in this country. And I want to know what you guys think. So, you know, we hear a lot about how um, – if we just don't do the things that we do in the black community, we wouldn't have these problems. Don't sell drugs. Don't sag pants. Don't uh, litter. That's one of Don Lemon's responses, was don't litter. <laughs> what do you guys think about this respectability politics? I, I I think Don Lemon is trolling us right now, and we are all playing into the – we are falling into the trap. Um, honestly, um, I mean – I know why Bill Cosby said what he said. He was born and raised in an era where respectability politics and playing that little game that, you know, good upstanding Negro could actually save your life, okay? It actually matters. It could actually get you into a good school, into a good job. I know why Bill O'Reilly said what he did, because he's a racist. Now, Don Lemon, <laughs> very Don Lemon was actually working. No, Don Lemon is working my last, last, last nerve, and I'm going to tell you why. <laughs> he's a troll. Lemon, Didn't you hear Anthony no, just say he's a troll? He's a live, a real life like troll. Dude is a straight up hypocrite, and I'm going to tell you why. Don Lemon is not just black, which is a minority in itself. Don Lemon is also gay. Would he ever right. in his life even think about going on air after, let's say, a hate crime was committed against an effeminate gay man and or a transgender a woman and said, hey, if you would just dress like a man and stop swaying your hips like that, yep. you wouldn't have been hurt? He would never right. even think of saying something like that. Don will be so right. He's saying, still one of us. <laughs> exactly. I mean, regardless, regardless of how black people act, and I mean, that, even that in itself is a bad analogy because right. those are those are those are um, characteristics that are specifically feminine characteristics. But certain behaviors in the black community, nearly all of them, can be seen in other racial and ethnic groups that experience the same sort of institutionalized racism and, more importantly, poverty and lower education that right. many people in the black community do. So it's not intrinsically a black behaviors he's attacking. He's attacking behaviors associated with lower income Americans, period. And you would never tell oh. someone, you know, if you would just stop looking so poor, your life would be better. Right. <laughs> right. 
What do you What do you think, MC? What's up? I'm not even sure if I have to if I have to piggyback. I think Em and Anthony <laughs> done said a mouthful so far. <laughs> done said a done said a mouthful. Um, so far, honestly, I like truthfully, I hadn't even heard of this story until probably couple until like a couple days ago because I I purposely chosen to like censor Don Lemon from my life ever since his little five point. <laughs> Whatever, I'm like, all right, all right, guy, I'm putting you on the block list. I just, uh, I'm not. <laughs> and, and as far as Bill Cosby, I was over Bill Cosby years ago. Especially once, once, once I heard some was getting ready to drop a, a, a rap album, that was pretty much the last thing I needed to know. I mean, again, I want to beat a dead horse with my thing where he would never say to you know um, a lesbian if you had just behave more like a woman or dress more like a woman, those men wouldn't have raped you or they wouldn't have beaten you or, you know, fill in the blank. Everyone would call it what it is. They would right. call it an attack. And it's, say, it's, it's interesting, it's interesting that they choose to ignore the countless examples time after time where we have good, upstanding Negroes in his eyes who still fall victim to racism and police brutality, et cetera. The list goes on. Exactly. No matter how many examples like come okay up, they still seem to peddle race. the same rhetoric. Right. And, and, and piggybacking off of that statement, I want to get into the Jonathan Farrell uh, situation. Uh, for those guys who don't know, Jonathan Farrell, he was a, he's a 24, he was a 24-year-old former football player at Florida A&M University, and he crashed his car in Charlotte, North Carolina. And the wreck was so bad that Farrell, according to police reports, had to climb out of the back window. He somehow stumbled in the middle of the night into the closest home and pounded on the door. And he supposedly, quote, was banging on the door officially. And uh, which is how the police phrase it when he begged for help. Um, according to police reports, the person inside didn't call an ambulance but hit her alarm panic button, indicating to police that a home invasion was in progress. As the because apparently home invaders like to bang on the door. Um, yeah. I just thought they just kicked in. The, what'd you say? I just thought they just kicked in the door and everything. Right, climb through the window. I don't know people who knock on the door, you know, but whatever. As the Charlotte PD approached, Pharrell continued to attempt to gain the attention of the homeowner. When they arrived, Pharrell charged toward them, quote-unquote charged toward them. One of the three officers tasered Pharrell. When that did not stop his advance, which is, again, in the police report, 27-year-old officer Randall Carrick opened fire, hitting Jonathan Pharrell ten times. Even though I think initially they were saying it was three times, but it was ten times, and they killed him at the scene. And um, now, this is a guy who was an upstanding guy. He was injured. He was a, a victim of a car accident, and he was killed because he was banging on a door, and they felt like he he was invading the home. And he supposedly advanced. Like I don't know if there's any evidence of any. I don't trust police reports very much, but. Is this something that you would think Don Lemon would start to retract his statement on? Or for um, anybody who has a respectability not. politics mentality? With respectability politics, I believe that there's, a, within the minds of these people, and by these people I mean people like Bill Cosby and Don Lemon, there's, there is, there is black people, the ones that are behaving badly, and 
the ones that aren't behaving badly are like some sort of rare unicorn or something. Um, <laughs> and in this particular case, I don't really, and I'm, I don't want, like, you know, let me finish my statement before anyone gets on my case, but I really don't see as the police acting in error in the situation. I see the original perpetrator um, who set the domino into effect was the one who hit the panic button. Um, you know, she sees a big black guy, and police police are responding to a panic call of a scared white woman who with a big black guy on her doorstep. So uh, how is wait 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 how does that absolve the police though? I mean, you don't think the state? No, no, no. I'm not absolving the. I'm not absolving the police. What I'm saying is, it's not like they were just wandering across the road and this guy was just coming up to them for help. He went to someone who, for help, who saw him as a threat because she saw him as a threat. Because remember, no one ever ignores the cries of a scared white woman. The police saw him as a threat. Right. Okay, I, that, that's, that's actually the point I was going to make to counter, but since you already said it and it's your point, I guess it's not really countering. <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> no, but I, I, I agree to some degree. Well, I do think the person who hit the panic button or whatever, I do think that they were definitely wrong. It was definitely based off of their own racist fears. But at the same time, the responsibility just completely falls on the police. I, have, I, I don't really see how they aren't fully responsible because they're the ones that are diddling. Well, you yeah, they because, shot him. But yeah, they were, and, in and, their minds, at the time that they shot him, I don't believe that they were doing it with the mentality of, oh, we need to shoot that black guy down. I believe they were, it was honestly with, with the fear of he's trying to hurt this white woman. She felt in danger. That's why she called us here. So, the, so then that brings into the, the discussion a much bigger a point, which isn't even about these individual police officers, but the view of black males in the first place. The fact that they see black males as threats even when they're victims. Mhm. I mean, this happened with the Trayvon Martin case. People were calling him a thug and George Zimmerman a victim, but the thug was in a casket and the victim was on trial. Right. So yeah, I, I'm I I completely agree with you, and the, I don't understand the mentality sometimes. I guess it's hard to understand when you're black, and you've seen you know at least I'm a, I'm a female, so I don't even have the same experience as a, as a male when it comes to these type of matters. But I've seen things happen to people I was with while I was with them, and the how it feels to even be a suspect or be considered the enemy before you've done anything, or if you've never done anything in the first place. So I think sometimes it's harder for me to understand the other side of that. Like, what is it like to grow up as a person who's always been taught that blackness is a threat, that blackness is dangerous, that black men are are always out to hurt you? Like, I don't know what that feels like, um, from a, especially from not from a white perspective. Yeah, I think as a black woman, this is just this is the one um, racial privilege that we have, and again, it's a racial one, like specifically as far as being black is concerned, where you're not constantly seen as a criminal or a danger. Right. Um, I think for black men, the only time in society that you're not considered a danger um, is if you look as weak or frail or feminine as possible. Right. That's Yeah. And I think this probably is one of the things that feeds into the homophobic um, rap culture where, you know, gay men are considered weak. 
Well, yeah, that's a, that's a whole other conversation about masculinity and what that is supposed to entail and patriarchy and all of that. I mean, that's a, I feel like that's a whole episode right there just to talk about that because it's such a broad and big major topic and issue. And maybe we should schedule something like that. But in the meantime, uh, right now we're going to take a quick break because we got to get into the next segment. And we got some GU family that I want to make sure get heard. So right now we're going to play Adequate, Think Before You Speak. Big shout out to him. Here we go. Deoxyribonucleic acid, for example. Sounds impressive, right? Have you ever seen what happens when you put something in acid? It dissolves. If our bodies were full of that acid, we'd all dissolve. If we did, in fact, evolve from monkeys, how come babies aren't born monkeys? So you think that if no one believes in any religion, there'd be no wars or fighting? I think it'd be worse. I think it'd be way worse. I know if I didn't have God's judgment and fear, I would have killed many, many times. It's not known whether uh, God created oil 6,000 years ago when he created the earth, or whether the coal deposits were developed during Noah's flood 4,000 years ago. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. What matters is that if you don't believe God created the earth 6,000 years ago, you're going to hell. The thing is, people can't think for themselves, and they get so confused about reality. Yo, so many illogical arguments get recycled in everyday conversations We're vindicating the Bible, defending a superstition with no facts that's unreliable No vital to your existence or any means to your survival I tend to ignore these hypocrites and I know when I'm being lied to If you don't bring knowledge to the table, I'll easily despise you So I cordially invite you to an open discussion But use your brain before you decide to start to gum bumping Most people say nothing, and most debates are trumping The emotions get in the way when they're explaining something They're always close to listen Always itching his feet You cut me off So I know you ain't listening to me Your ideas are faulty Your depictions are weak Quick to pull out scriptures Like robbers that creep with the heat Outdated principles Will easily suffer defeat You're not deep I suggest you think before you speak Yeah, you better think before you speak Cause you don't want to run into A rational person like me You don't want me to have you question Everything you believe And change your whole perception How you view reality I'm brutally honest But most say I mean You can't say that what you said, even with the time machine. Remain inferior while I remain to be supreme. And remember when you talk to me, to think before you speak, nigga. What an arrogant douchebag that can't last a minute without shutting her bottle. Here's a news flash. Yelling and getting hysterical won't get your views fast. It's rational ideas. If you don't like that, then that's too bad. It's too sad you feel that it need to be instigated. I conclude most people don't have to slide the at all. Or what's a decent conversation? Isn't that the point of the maiden? To be at least given a chance to make a solid point in your statement? Well, I mean, I'm just saying. It doesn't hurt to listen. It could detect by the wrong in your opponent's position. But you're not paying attention. Just to run in your mouth. And sharing opinions on things you know nothing about. Talking in circles. That's why I'm not hearing you out. Taking yourself inside a grave, you would never get out. I know you're bitter. That's why you get angry and shout. So think twice the next time you open your mouth. Yeah, you better think before you speak. Cause you don't want to run into a rational person like me. You don't want me to have you question everything you believe. And change your whole perception how you view reality. I'm brutally honest, but most say I mean. You can't take back what you said, even with the time machine. Remain inferior while I remain to lead the I'm not saying there's definitely no God, but the arrogance of a religious person who just knows, not only knows that there's a God, but knows it's this God, it's the Christian God, it's the Trinity, and the Virgin Mary was born of a virgin. I mean, they've got it all written down pat. 
And they've got absolutely not a shred of evidence for any of it. That's arrogant. All right, you just heard Adequate Think Before You Speak. You can actually get his music from his Bandcamp page, which is adequate.bandcamp.com, and place that link into the chat room as well so you guys can get that song or, or any songs of his mixtape, which is actually pretty good. Um, all right, guys, we're going on to the next topic, and we are going to be talking about... <sighs> This family, there's a, I don't know if you guys got, did you guys just read the story about the family in South Africa? And I'll talk about this because I thought it was a really interesting topic overall. Um, this is about a South, African, a South African family. They're a white family, grew up in the suburbs in a gated community. And they have a family and they decided to move to like a shanty town, South Africa, one of the poorest areas of South Africa. Um, it's I can't really pronounce all of the names, so um, forgive me if I ruin everything. But it's a Fomalong squatter camp. That's where they move. So it's like a shack where there's like a lot of people who um, don't really have even, even even running water. And sort of the issue that people are having is that they did this on purpose. It wasn't like they needed to move there. It wasn't that they uh, hit a hard point. They moved there on purpose to just to see what it was like to live that way. And not everybody is, uh-huh. you know, too happy. Some people are, like, supportive, like, yes, it's important that people experience these things, and the family themselves have said that they did it because they just wanted to have this experience for themselves. They weren't really looking for anything political to come out of it. But, and and, and some people said it's, you know, like, their neighbors and their friends say it's a wonderful thing, except for their personal family members who think it's, crazy or ridiculous and dangerous because they also have their toddler children in this community, which apparently has there's crime issues and all kinds of other problems. So what do you guys think? I'm going to get into some of the quotes that other people have said, but I want to know what you guys think about things like that. I mean, do you think that's um, appropriate? Do you think that's okay? Like, Do you think it's a wonderful thing, or do you think it really is some sort of, as someone referred to it, uh, someone named Busi Dlamini, who's a director of an organization uh, called Digital, I'm sorry, Dignity International, um, which is a rights group in South Africa. She uh, she said it was poverty pornography. So I wonder what you guys think about it. Yeah, I, I, I think yeah. if you, you know, like uh, these sorts of of uh, social experiments, I guess you could call them, where people, you know, are living off food stamps for a week or moving into an area, I think, you know, they're good for a couple of news cycles, but they don't necessarily go far at all into changing the structural issues that, that make these types of stories possible to begin with. Mm-hmm. Right. Um. Okay. I mean, I'm going to be a little bit um, mean right now. Okay. Um, <laughs> mean these to people, who? These, this family, um, the parents specifically, um, you Wow, okay. This is some bullshit. I hope there are no children listening. This is some bullshit that only a privileged person would do to intentionally put their children... Oh, I'm really sorry. I have to cut you off really quickly because I forgot to mention this, um, and we're going to get back to you. If you are listening to the show right now, you have to call in to continue. We're going to continue the podcast, but it's not going to be live. On, uh, you're just not going to hear it from the computer. You have to log. You have to call in. The call-in number is 310-982-4273. So if you're listening, please call in if you want to hear. If you don't want to chime in, you don't have to. Just don't press 1, okay? So uh, 
please call in right now, 310-982-4273. We are going to continue the show. It's just going to be uh, recorded and, and podcasted. It's not going to be uh, live anymore. So, again, chat room people, call in. We want to hear from you. Okay, go ahead, Em. Yeah, I think this is um, complete bullshit. Only people who were born and raised in a privileged situation would ever intentionally put themselves in. These people basically moved to a shanty town in South Africa where you just said they're, they're, they have people have problems getting running water. Do you under, I mean, do they even understand how many illnesses and diseases spring up just from not having clean water alone? And what mm-hmm. the experience of poverty is like. You are glamorizing and exotifying extreme poverty for no reason. You're bored with your life, be bored with your life. I mean, just do cocaine like every other rich white person. Like, <laughs> what, like what are you doing? <laughs> Moving your wow. Children. <laughs> she said rich white people do cocaine. You heard it first here. No, I'm just saying. <laughs> like, just. Why would you put your children in that situation? It's just crime. Again, there's no running water. These structures that these homes are built with and on are them in and of themselves a danger. I can't even begin to explain how deeply, deeply fucked up this situation is. And it is pornography porn. It's, oh, my God, you know, we could be living the good life, but we choose to live here. You don't have the poverty experience because, you know, shit ever really does get real. You can always go back to your cushy little life in the American suburbs. You are putting your yourself and your children in this unnecessary, excuse my language, shithole because you are bored and you want to be modern-day South African Get over it. Like, seriously, like this is bullshit. Get over yourself. Let me give the full quote from the New York Times article. Um, It's the the quote that I gave is from Busi Blamini, and like I said, she's the executive director of Dignity International, which is which is a rights group, and she said that the Hewitt's motives were clearly noble, but that their experiment in township living was bound to be fraught given the history of South Africa. And she says, quote, it is what I call poverty pornography. They put themselves at the center of the narrative that reinforces the centrality of whiteness in South Africa. And Osiami Molefe, a writer who was working on a book about race relations in South Africa, wrote in an email that the Hewitt's Empathy Project is a performance for the privilege of being relatively wealthy and white. He added, they have sought out one and accepted sympathy and praise for living the hardships others experience daily without receiving the commensurate plaudits. And I 100% agree with that, that last quote especially. I think it's very interesting. Oh, my God, they're so great for living there. Oh, they're so great for standing. Exactly, exactly. That's how I feel about it. It's, It's very like... I'm not. I'm just not impressed by people who go out of their way to try to prove something. It's like I don't. I don't know. It's like I'm not sure what your motive is at that point. You're saying you're doing it for yourself, just for your own entertainment. Like that bothers me. Like it's not entertaining to be poor. Like I can't even imagine what it's like to live in those kind of communities. You know, fancy community, a shack community, a, a squatter township. Like I don't know what that feels like, and I would not make a inter, entertain myself 
by trying to prove a point like, hey, I'm just going to prove that I can do this or this is so hard. Look at how hard it is for me because I'm from a big cushy life. Like it, it seems almost mocking. You know? Yeah, because when um, you are struggling in that situation, even that struggle is like a, a facade of the actual struggle of the person who is desperately trying to get out of that situation as opposed to you, the person that gleefully entered that situation. Exactly. I have another caller on the line, caller 202. Your mic is open. Can you tell us what your name is and where you're calling from? Um, this is Curtis, and I'm calling from Cincinnati. Welcome, Curtis. Hey, how are you? What Did you want to chime in on the topic? Uh, yeah. Um, one thing, I wanted to bring in another perspective uh, for it. Um, poor people have terrible lobbyists, as it is. Um, it's mm-hmm. extremely easy. It's extremely easy to have utter indifference for the poor simply because nothing that they do, nothing that they are, remotely affects me in any way at all. They're going to die, and I'm just going to keep on doing what they do. People are going to do what they do. So the other end of the spectrum is that I would say that misguided empathy beats indifference any day of the week. Could they be doing more things? Absolutely. Could other people give more attention to it in another way? Yeah, but at the same time, if these things wouldn't exist at all, you know, you wouldn't be hearing about them. Like I said, because poor people have such poor lobbyists, any attention whatsoever, however misguided um, or how angry it makes me, you know, I will put in the win column because they need all they can get anyway. Hmm. I might agree with that if they didn't bring their children into, again, this very unhygienic, dangerous living condition. They're yeah, not just poor, it is stupid. It's, <laughs> like, it's stupid as hell, but, you know, the poor people are getting attention. So I think that's a, a good thing because I they are, I, I poor people is easy I, to neglect. I the disagree. Poor are getting the attention. I 100% they disagree. They are, I, was, I exactly am. These, the poor people are not getting the attention. These white folks have been getting attention. I'm sorry. Let's just be real. These these people have been there. They've that's been true. there. These are not, this is not a community that just popped up out of nowhere. So no, the, the poor people well, are not. We're still talking. What we're talking people. about them now. I, I mean, they're getting attention. Don't get me wrong, and they're getting uh, disproportionate attention. I would argue, but even then, we're still having a conversation about poverty, even while we're talking about how these white yeah, people but, are attempting. Yeah, but people like me and you are going to have conversations about poverty anyway. Let's just, you know, people uh, on this not, line, not I talk, people on this line, well, maybe not you, but most people on this line right now, at least these people on my show, we've talked about poverty. So <laughs> I'm right. telling you, right. it's, 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 we're not the ones that need the message necessarily. So, I mean, yes, we're talking I about it. That's true. Curtis, I understand the point you're trying to make, I really do, but in all the articles concerning the story, I just see um, photos of happy, smiling white people. They can smile at Broadly. They can smile at Broadly because um, they know that they have a home to go back to if things ever get unbearable or they don't want to do it anymore. Um, I, and, and that's I, media. I guess, I'm, I'm not even blaming the family. We can't control what the how the media pushes the story, you know, especially right, uh, right. international stories. Sorry, I think yeah. I was speaking generally because this is nowhere near the first or last instance of something like this happening. I guess. Uh, the the amount of misguided empathy varies from case to case to case. Like for uh, college campuses, for my fraternity, we used to do stuff like that on college campuses where we would have a sleep-in for the poor 
and we would collect canned goods and then take food down to them in town. You know, that was something that we used to do every year. But we by no means even pretended to act like we were actually poor. That wasn't the point at all, um, or to get props for it. But, you know, like I said, the scale of misguided empathy can range, you know what I mean? So I guess I was speaking generally, not just specifically to the story. Which oh, no, Curtis, I, I completely understand what you're saying because, I mean, oh. when I was still religious, my old Catholic church, we did, um, we did, we did, you know, sit-ins for the poor as well, you know, mm-hmm. and the fact was to bring attention to South Florida's homeless population, collect food for them, um, do things for them, bring general attention and right. donations to them. It was never a situation where we were pretending to be poor. We didn't go out there dressed in our worst clothes, pretending like we didn't have homes to go to at night, um, nor did we immerse ourselves in that situation where we would just live on the street for a week or a month and then get the news cameras to tell our sob stories about how hard it was when the entire time we right. knew we had a home to go back to. And this is what bothers me about the situation it's not like they use their time and their talent to, let's say, do a documentary, um, give supplies and food and shelter to the people there. No, they just want to experience living there so they can tell everyone how hard it is. I think anyone, even or the, the most, National the most Geographic syndrome, too. Exactly. I think even what, the most apathetic what, what, in the what, world. What, what, I don't even know what that is. What's the National Geographic syndrome? What? Uh, other people's uh, experiences and culture and, and things of that nature, when it varies to a significant degree from what somebody is used to, then a person can look at other people as novelties and divorce themselves from their humanity completely. Meaning oh, that exactly. they're a, de- a decora- okay, yeah. decoration in the environment that you don't feel. It's almost like you're looking at a picture of nature, but you feel no obligation at all to com- to contribute to the picture. You just need to look at it. Oh, that's interesting. I haven't heard that. Well, I have a caller on the line, 609. I want to go ahead and get you in. It looks like you want to talk. Um, can you please state your name and where you're from? Yeah, uh, this is Mohammed from New Jersey. Hi, Mohammed. Hi. Uh, right. um, well, yeah, I, I I wanted to uh, make a point, and I kind of disagree with Curtis. I don't think that this is um, really uh uh beneficial at all um to the to the people to the, i mean you know to the uh to the people the poor people um this is sort of a way for privileged people to um kind of assuage their guilt to like kind of like mm. deal with the guilty feeling that they feel um and it and it and it acts it's used uh, in a way to address those feelings without actually doing anything to change the situation, to, to fundamentally change the situation that the, the people are facing. Um, so I, I don't like that. Like, um, it, it, it's it's a you know it's kind of I have problems with white guilt, like people having white guilt because so many times, like white people with white guilt will. will uh, kind of use the guilt that they feel, like the, the fact that they feel guilty as a way of avoiding um, actually making any fundamental change. It's it's like, oh, I have these bad feelings, so I'm a good person because I feel this is wrong. 
Mm-hmm. So I don't really have to actually do anything. It's like we don't need to guilt. I think it's narcissism personally. I think well, it's narcissism well, personally because most white people, well, it's, if it's, they it's, do yeah. feel guilty, they give money, but they don't want you to know about it, and that's cool for them. When you go through to the next step of actually pretending you have a cultural experience you don't really have, I don't mm-hmm. think that's guilt doing that. Yeah, what do you think about ego, whether it's well, to piggyback off what Muhammad said, I believe that there was an element of white guilt, but at the same time, um, I agree that there is an element of narcissism there as well, because this isn't exactly the same as, let's say, a white person in America feels guilty, they have some white guilt, so they donate to, like, inner city youth or the NAACP or something. It would be, I guess the equivalent would be to put yourself in the poorest um, black neighborhood in the U.S. and just live there and be like, oh, yeah, I feel so badly that I'm living there. I'm struggling, too. Don't blame me for what for what's going on. Don't expect me to do anything. Just look at the fact yeah. that I, I choose to struggle, so it's not my fault at all, even though I can't. I, I have a question, though. Uh, just to, just to, in the, you know, to add some seasoning to the conversation, if empathy one would argue that empathy is a necessary condition to be able to really be in solidarity with somebody that you're an ally for. You can't truly be them, but how does one adequately empathize with another group without seeming to make a mockery of them? I think that's a very fine line to walk, especially if the the group is biased towards your attention. So how how would you do that? I I personally don't think you can. You can empathize with another group that you're not part of. I think you can sympathize with them. Um, I, like, I can't, for example, as a black man, I can't empathize with the plight of women entirely. I will never understand what women go through completely. Um, but I do. But is that necessary to? Not completely. Yeah, of course that's, not. That, that's what I'm. This is that's what I'm getting. This is what I'm actually getting at. It's. You know, what I am able to see is that they face certain injustices that I don't as a black man, and I can sympathize with that, and I can act on that. And I don't need to pretend to be a woman in order to, you know, in order to actually take action to end this, this, uh, you know, the, the, what I see that they face. Like, you know, you don't need to be able to be a homeless person to, you, you can't entirely empathize with what a homeless person goes through if you're not if you've not ever been homeless, but you can sympathize with the situation and see that it's wrong and it, it, it's something. It's wrong kind, it's kind it of is. like a saying you know. that would you ever turn down a, a, a oncologist if he didn't have cancer? Mm-hmm. See, I disagree you know. with that. I don't even think that's a. I think that's such a false equivalency, and I'm gonna tell you why. Because you have a. a just because you have a certain level of sympathy for someone and you want to help them, that doesn't necessarily mean that you that you think that you're the, that you have the cure that you can heal this person necessarily. When I think of, for, I'll give you an example. I do a lot of work uh, work with youth, and I did a lot of work with foster youth and youth who have grown up in um, who grew up abandoned and things like that, in kinship care and, and parents who were incarcerated. I've never had a parent incarcerated. I've never been um, in foster care. I've never known what it was like to be away from my family in that way. So, and I don't 
don't have those same abandonment issues. But at the same time, I sympathize with those with the youth that I've worked with, and I've sent, and so what I do is, as I take action and policy, I look at what can I do to change the plight of foster youth. When they turn 18, a lot of them end up homeless. They end up homeless and on drugs because they're in the streets trying to survive. So what policies can come out that will change that? So what do I do? I go out and I help advocate for what what the foster youth organizations are doing. They say, we want to make it so when kids turn 18, they have a home to go to. So I say, okay, I support their efforts, the work that they themselves are doing. I don't have to be a foster youth. I can support the work that the people who are who have been or who are and the work that they're organizing. I can support that work. I can be the – they say they – Well, yeah, yeah, I think you're agreeing with what I was saying. Like, I was saying that you don't have to be, have cancer in order to know how to, you know, be able to help somebody not have cancer. Which but is I'm what, not going uh, in as the healer is what I'm saying. I'm not saying I have the cure. Well, I can treat it. I'm saying that. Well, I'm not it's saying you have it either. I mean, you don't, okay. I'm, not saying that I, you're, I'm not saying that you have the cure, but I'm saying that you don't necessarily need to completely understand the plight of another to be able to try to assist it. That's all I'm saying. I mean, but this I is the actual situation. I see these people living the way they're living, putting them, their, 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 themselves and their children in this extreme poverty situation, in this dangerous situation. And um, I see them smiling for photos because they understand that this is only temporary and, it, more importantly, it's voluntary. And I just have this scene in my head of, you know, flash forward one or two years from now, and they're talking about how real it was and how intense it was at some dinner party while shucking oysters. <laughs> right, that's the National, Ge- that's the National <laughs> Geographic Syndrome. I'm telling you, I'm like, there are some, like, when you never had to worry about where your meals are coming from, the, the, the thought, the experience of not knowing where that comes from is almost like a thrill to you. So it's almost like they are – it's another form of thrill-seeking if you really look at it because, like I said, poor people, it's like they can't – if you are wealthy, you can't really fathom drinking water with cholera in it. Like that's not even in your experience. So people want to adapt these things and try to – because they can, like, try it on like a, uh, like a salad bar. If they don't want this thing, they can move on to the next experience knowing – that they can always go home to the refrigerator if they don't like anything at the salad bar. Kind of like what I mean, you're saying. That's the way that I feel about it, too. It's like um, I feel that, like Mohammed said, there's certain things that you can't completely empathize with unless you are within that group. However, you don't have to empathize. Honestly, sometimes I don't even think it's necessary to sympathize, just acknowledge that the other person's feelings are valid and move on. I think the problem in poverty, um, um, you know, discussions about poverty, discussions about race, discussions about gender orientation, is that the people on the outside who constantly try to invalidate the feelings and experiences of the group that's on the inside, the group that's experiencing this. And the fact of the matter is, as far as poverty is concerned, every single person here has been hungry. Not starving, but you've been hungry and you wanted a meal. Every person on this line has been thirsty. Not dying of thirst, but you needed a drink of water. Anybody who is told, any any rational, logical person who is told, hey, there are people who feel this feeling intensified all day long. There are people who experience this for weeks at a time. Can 
can, you know, try to paint a weak mental picture. You'll never truly get there, but you can think to yourself, you know, that's a valid situation to be in. Like, that's a situation that needs to, you know, I maybe I need to keep my mouth shut about it and let them feel how they feel and do what I can where I can if I want to. And, and let the people who are there, who are going through whatever, let them tell you what, where they need you or they could use your help. Stop. I mean, that's what right. I, you have to be an ally. You right. know, yeah, that's that's how you're an ally. That's why, and I've gotten a lot of pushback on this from people. And I said this a, a, a few years ago, actually, on one of my old radio shows, and I got pushback on my personal Facebook page ago when I said this. But I do not, absolutely, do not support white organizations meant to help Africans. Like I don't do it. I don't support them. I always support organizations that are made by the people, from the people, and come from them. I don't support those organizations. Not to say that they're doing bad things or that you shouldn't. I never say people shouldn't help. But I personally, I just have a conflict with that. I don't, when white Americans like, I'm going to go to Africa and help them. I just, I I, I, got to push back on those people, and I'm glad somebody agrees with me on it. But, like, but seriously, I, I just have a problem with people not knowing how to be. And I don't need I don't. I don't support that white savior mentality. I don't support it, and I, I have. And I refuse to support it. Work. There are people who are on the ground who organize every single day, who who are in these places in low income communities across the world, around the world, who are organizing, who fight. These are not incompetent it, people. And it's well, my I argument go- that is it's globalization. My thing is in a field with with globalization, right? You have all kinds of the cultures merely. The fact that we're thinking solely in terms of black and white belies our narrow experience, American experiences, which is a problem in and of itself. The idea, and you know, if they had everything that they needed, cult, sociologically, culturally, and everything else to get out of the situation there, they wouldn't be in it in the first place. So my thing is, there's, I wouldn't. Have no, that's a group not. Whoa, 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 whoa! That that has a, nothing to do with what I said, though. That's no, not what no, I'm, I'm saying. No, no, no. I'm saying that I wouldn't have. I wouldn't go to the measure of saying that just because a person happened to share the same characteristics that they necessarily know how to get out of their own situation. I wouldn't go that far is what I'm saying. But so there's nothing in me that makes them that, – there's nothing inherent in whiteness that makes somebody uniquely unqualified to figure out how to get another group of people to keep them from starving. There's nothing inherent in that that I can see. But I don't – that's, that's – that's. Nowhere near what I'm saying. I'm not saying that um, that people who are not of that group cannot help that group. I'm not saying that they don't have a certain level of knowledge and expertise in a certain area. But even then, it's about coming and seeing where you fit. People are people who have been uneducated and have been able to fight for their freedom. And slavery is a perfect example of that. So it's not that people are just. But they, that's uh, not that's not an example of that. There was a war to end that. Not just no, not saying the entire slavery ended because I'm talking about there were people who were there were people people who fought against and fought for their own freedom is what I'm saying. And so to say that they, need, they didn't have to have the formal education to make that happen that doesn't necessarily mean that people who were educated didn't support weren't allies. They definitely were, and they always do that. But at the end of the day, it still has to come from the people. It's the people that are suffering, and those of us who are not a part of that group should just we have to learn where we fit and how to be allies. Instead of trying to lead movements, I'm here to be your savior. Oh, I see what you're saying. I see what you're I'm about yeah. imperialistic ways of quote unquote helping. That's what I'm talking. No, about. I'm kind of straddling the line of both of you because I do agree with Vita that there is 
oh, it's not even uh, with black people or with poor people, but all pretty much every minority and everyone that's not, that that is below middle class around the world, there tends to be a white saver mentality. And my particular beef with it isn't, you know, just saying we're white people and we're here to help you. It's because the vast majority of the time, these people bring they their um their 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 societal and cultural beliefs as well as their religious beliefs with them, and then the they create a whole new set of problems without listening to the people in the first place and what they need and what they want. Well, I, 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 wait, let you, like, no, I don't and think tell I think the people should be led and give them some food. People should lead their own. People may not have the tools. It's almost like uh, being in management, right? If, if you're a manager, it's not your job to know everything to make it a success, but it's your job to put the pieces together. If you're an ally, you're a piece of the puzzle that people can use to help themselves, help themselves right? It's not your job to come in and lead people to their own um, goals. That's what I'm saying. And uh, I think that's what I'm you're saying. right. I agree with that's you on that point. Okay, yeah. Oh, well, that's what we agree. I'm glad we, next, and we're going to go to the next topic with you and me agreeing. How about that? Awesome. The next topic we have is uh, Isaiah Washington. Who remembers him from Grey's Anatomy? Uh, oh, I yeah. I was, you guys. I was, oh, yeah. I was, I was I in love with his character. Oh, really, guy? Um, um, man, Dr. Burke. <laughs> <And> I, <laughs> right. So back in I'm getting this from uh, EUR Web Urban Report. Um, back in 2007, Isaiah Washington was fired from his role as Dr. Preston Burke on the TV show Great Anatomy after using homophobic slurs. During his recent interview with HuffPost Live, Washington said that was the moment everything just fell apart in his career. Quote, I lost everything. I couldn't afford to have an agent. I couldn't afford to have a publicist. I couldn't afford to continue. Constantly started, I said to use the word, I'm not, I, I cannot use the word, but it's the F word targeted towards the LGBTQ community uh, during argument with Patrick Dempsey on Grey's Anatomy set. The word was used in reference to their co-star, T.R. Knight, who came out as gay shortly after the incident. That fueled the fire. I used the word again in a press room at 2006 Golden Globe following Grey's Anatomy win for Best Drama Series of the Year. He was let go from the show months later and blacklisted in Hollywood. 50-year-old actor explained to the Huffington Post that no one in the industry wanted to touch him. The fourth exit from the limelight did, however, did however have some benefits. He said, I became a better husband, a better father, and a better artist. My question, though, is because this was talked about in a couple of, of shows that I had listened to, and some people are saying this is completely deserving. You should completely lose your career if some things like this happen. Others are saying that's not the case. I mean, we have people like Don Imus who are, or other people who have been able to continue their careers in some way, um, even if it was independently. They were able to continue their careers in some way after saying something offensive. What do you guys think? Do you guys is there, is there a bias if you're a, 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 a black person saying something about a a homosexual, a homosexual, or something derogatory towards a homosexual group, or is it just you know people? It's deserving, or do you think you know everybody gets the same treatment in that regard? No, I mean it's what I think. This is kind of I can go back to what I was saying about the Don Lemon situation. If he mm-hmm. said you know similar things about gay people or Jewish people. Um, it would have been a huge backlash, but he said it about black people, so it's cool. And there have been a lot of entertainers that have said 
um, you know, um, either very um, covertly or overtly racist things towards black people, and it's been fine. And he said something homophobic, he lost his career. Now, I, it's not my responsibility to tell, to say a producer or director should work with someone who has gotten such public backlash. He lost his career because people reacted badly to what he said. That was a money-making, it still is, money-making Emmy-winning show. I understand why, you know, they wouldn't want him on the show anymore. I mean, I've been a, I was a fan of Isaiah Jones, like, circa Love Jones, and he was like an auxiliary character in that movie. And he's a great actor. However, you have to understand when you have a, that sort of career, you should be careful of the things you say in public. I mean, yeah. that's, that's true. I, I agree. I think that, you know, you know, public, I think that in this day and age, especially with Generation Y, each generation gets more liberal than the last. And the amount of tolerance that the generations are willing to levy on someone who's overtly racist is dwindling with each generation. And, and at the end of the day, you have freedom of speech. You can say anything you want to. If you think blacks are niggers, that is your right to think that. You can say it to your heart's content. However, you do not have the right to have a specific outcome or to have your beliefs accepted. So every word that you say out of your mouth, you run the risk of you losing your career or being ostracized. It is what it is. That's, that's the price you pay for the ability to say what you want without going to jail. Exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I don't have any sympathy. Like uh, Paula Dean, him, black, white, and different. If you say anything, and, and, and it's about timing. Right now, gays, you know, atheists, blacks, at some point, Jews, even immigrants, at some point in time, had to accept everything you said to them without recourse at one point in time in history. Now it's the point in time to where a particular group, the social power is arrayed in their favor to the way you can't say that. I don't have I don't have any sympathy for you. You had a head start. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So it's like mm-hmm. like whites who lose their career over uh, making black racial slurs. Sure, I know that's your opinion, but you had a few century head start with the word first. So it's like, how could I have sympathy for you? Exactly. Right. I mean, like I said, I think he's a talented actor. Um, you know, still, I mean, he's thrifty, right? So, you know, good looking. He could have, his career would have flourished. His character was he amazing. He's not good looking, that girl. Show. Sorry. But that's I'm a, sorry, that's he's a matter not good of looking. opinion, then. That's a matter of opinion. <laughs> that's, a whole, that's a whole other debate. <laughs> his, character was a main his character was like a main character on the show. Not only was he um, one of three black doctors on the show, but. He his character was also the most respected and considered the most brilliant doctor in the entire hospital. They could have gone leaps mm-hmm. and bounds with that, but they decided to get rid of him, not even kill off his character, just to get rid of him, which is like the worst way to leave a show because everyone knows if you're going to leave, at least they, could, they had the decency to kill off your character. But, right. yeah, they the just, crazy they just part about it is if it was aired at a different, at a different demographic, he wouldn't have lost his job. Great anatomy is targeted to a particular group of people, mostly women, between the in their twenties, right? Well, 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 Question: What group? If if the who at the if the target audience was what he would have kept his job? I'm just curious. If this if this target audience was the people who actually sit down to stomach Fox News, he wouldn't have lost his job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being honest with you. Honestly, you know what I'm saying? I'll, and 
I'm going to get flack for this, but I think it's also if there had been uh, the, the show had been geared to an older black demographic, like late 30s to 50s black people. So oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. What, oh, yeah. Well, what the right. show was geared towards now, women, you know, between the, in their twenties and so twenties to forties, and 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 you know, um, the the gay and lesbian community. There, there, I think there's two doctors on the show that are married lesbians. So you have you, this is the stuff mm. you got to think about. <laughs> like, you can't That's say anything you want on camera when you're an actor. Just don't. <laughs> no, you're absolutely one hundred percent on point. You can't say anything you want when people are paying you for your image. Like when they're like when they and people don't and, and sports stars they don't do not understand when you get an endorsement, a company is essentially buying your image to sell pantyhose or whatever it is that they sell it. The moment your image is not what they paid you for initially in the contract, you have breached their contract and they dump you. That's what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Tiger got Tiger got dropped by a lot of his endorsers after his whole Hell infidelity yeah. with like the nation came out. You know, you mean his infidelity with the entire nation of white women? Let's just be real. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and it was just okay. Dude cheated on his wife. He didn't commit any crimes. He didn't he didn't call anybody out or was racist or homophobic in any way. But he lost his image as that squeaky clean, you know, multiracial guy who plays golf. I don't even understand yeah. that. Infidelity gets you get you uh, laid out, too. That'll end your career, too. And how you all on the TV apologizing. It has nothing to do with your talent or anything else. But infidelity, 50% of the country, even if they're unfaithful, do not want to hear about how you sleep around. That you lose <laughs> an entire chunk of the population when you get caught like that. It is what it is, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, when 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 she hit the fan with Monica Lewinsky, I was like, "Why are we talking about this? Isn't he the president? Like, isn't this Hillary's problem?" But everybody has right. something to say about it. Because it's, right. it's, it's like we we make paragons of people, and they and they are bigger than just people. They become icons. They become ideas personified. <clears throat> right? When those ideas go away, then they gotta pay. It is what it is. You decided that you wanted this. So you have had a responsibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, M, you actually gave us a story, and I want you to talk about it, um, about the 11-year-old black entrepreneur. Oh, right, right, right. Let me pull up that link very, very quickly. Um, we have an 11-year-old um, who uh, named Maya. Hold on, let me get the full story here. I hate my internet. I just want to point that out. <laughs> um, you have an 11-year-old um, from from um, Canton, Georgia. Um, her name is Maya Penn, and her company is called Maya's Ideas, and she has created a line of eco-friendly clothing. Um, Maya is a homeschooled little girl, and she's already been featured in Forbes um, on Forbes.com, and her company donates 10% of the profits. Um, to worldwide and local Atlanta charities. Um, she says she's always loved to find fabrics on the house and, you know, make a good headband or a good hat or things like that. Um, she is a homeschooled seventh grader and, you know, you know, busy girl already. She's already on the come up with her company and her schoolwork, and that is her focus, her company, um, which is, again, it's called Maya's Ideas, and it's an eco-friendly clothing company. So take that, Don Lemon. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's right. I think that's I think that's really important that we share stories like this more often because I think we get lost in all the negative, especially when as it pertains to youth. We like to I hear often, oh, the youth are pretty much lost. The youth are this. The youth are that. Which I think is a ball faced fucking lie, and I had to add the fucking in there because that's how upset it makes me. But there are and there are so many great by the generation who raised them. I just want to point exactly. that out. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, you feel me? We can have these feel good stories, but we need to get these math and science scores up for real. <laughs> it is what it is. I, you know, it's cool. Thank we you. We do, but that's but, not the uh, fault of the youth. That's not the fault of the youth. That's, let's be real. Math and science scores are not the youth's fault. That's not their fault. I don't it's think the anything fault. is the youth's fault. We need to pay these teachers <laughs> more, and then we could get these scores up, couldn't we? <laughs> I don't think I don't think that's a part of the problem anyway. We pay the, we pay we spend more money per student on education than any other country in the world. That's not the the total problem. It's not really? the I mean, where where is this money going? Yeah. It's not going to the textbooks or the teachers. Where is and it going? Well, it depends. What M, you got to keep in mind. Like that's not the only. Um, I mean, first of all, there's complete disparity in that. Like that number, you cannot give a broad number like that regarding the U.S. and think that's accurate because there are schools that are definitely suffering and do, that are not getting that. Our money. poorest, so, our poorest schools are ranked lesser than the poorest schools in India. The average school in they, India. That's what I'm saying. Like it's more than money. You can't throw money at the problem. Oh yeah, I'm not saying it's testing. Oh, is I agree. Also a huge issue. I agree it's not just money, but I'm just uh, but I just wanted to make sure we that when we say America schools, I mean we we have to be kind of accurate. Like there are some schools that are really and even if they have money, it's oh, yeah, not yeah. benefiting the students cuz I know when I was in school, we didn't have books. We had to have a protest just to get books in our class. Like that's how bad my school was. We had there were classes that didn't even have a teacher. We may or may not have a substitute to cover that class. Like that's how bad <laughs> the conditions were at the schools that I've been to growing up. Part of it so, is culture. Because, like, our ancestors had less, but education was a top priority for them. Like, you know, I got older parents, I, I got older I, grandparents. I think it's so, a priority now. You know. I'm sorry. I don't buy into this overly nostalgic view of the past because I, I think there are plenty of parents who care now and plenty of parents who, are, who try their best to be involved. I don't think that's changed. I, that's just my perspective. But that's not I don't what I'm that. saying either, though. Okay, there's, I'm sorry, a, maybe I but you gotta admit, especially with the free thinker movement and things of that nature, you gotta admit there is a particular level of anti-intellectualism, anti-science that's even being pervaded in politics, is being pervaded in American culture as a whole. That's kind of unprecedented. Oh, I, I, that I agree with. I hear what you're saying on that point. I do. You see what I'm saying? So it's like. Just to interject, what one thing? of many things that might be the reason why education is suffering is because of the emphasis put on standardized testing instead yep. of having the student actually learn interactively and retain that knowledge instead of just memorizing facts that they have never implemented in order to pass a test and get moved to the next grade level. Learning That's something is it. one thing. Understanding what you've learned is completely different. I'm there are tons of people that can, can read and have no reading comprehension skills. They can read something over and over, yep. and it's just a stumble of words. Just because you can pronounce those words doesn't mean that you understand what the words on the page are saying. Yep. You know, yeah, the other I, thing I, I, I you know there's another have, problem, though. Well, it's, I, I also want—I just wanted to bring up that um, uh, there needs to be uh, more emphasis on, like, really early childhood education, like Absolutely. really early. Because like, that's, that's really missing in a lot of black communities, and it's kind of screwed up because, like, you know, in, in more privileged areas, which are usually not black, 
um, there's Head Start programs, and those mm-hmm. those give like a massive boost to kids when they start school. They're, they're starting out ahead, and a lot of families, especially if a family's struggling, they don't have uh, the time or resources to to do this at home. Um, yeah, so and I, was gonna, this, you know, I think that's so true. I think that is so true. And I, and also add to that, in this country, we don't have uh, the same maternity and paternity leave that a lot of other countries have in the sense that you can right. take an entire year to be with your family after you had a baby, which I think is really important. It's, it's part of development. Yeah. I mean, having, having but, taken care of babies and children, their development in the beginning, you can see so much, and you can assist in that, in how they how they receive information, how you're talking to them. All those things are very happen very very early in their development. But we, in this country, we don't put that same. We supposedly have family values in this country, supposedly, but at the same time, we don't have policy that backs that up. We don't have an economy you know those that supports people only that. come out of the woodwork when they're offended by something on TV. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. But you know, just to bring it. But that's because they're really privileged. They made a really to take point. off of work. I'm sorry, sir. Well, yeah, he brought up a really good point. Past the study show, I think it was a study done by Harvard University. If if your kid is behind by the time they're in the third grade, they will not catch up. Third to in terms of salaries, mm-hmm. um, salaries. Uh, let's see. How how likely you are to graduate from college, how likely you are to rise up the ranks, actually has a higher correlation to third grade test scores than it does to the SAT. Hmm. And, oh, that's just one data point. And then the other data point is this: um, by uh, Carl uh, Alexander of Rutgers University did a really good study on the disparities, the educational disparities between the poor and the rich. And what he found out is that. The poor kids and the rich kids, even when you adjust for the type of schools that they in, learn in the early years at comparatively the same rate, meaning there's few differences in the early years in educational quality because of what they're, the simplicity of what they're learning, right? Mm-hmm. The problem is rich kids have the, the – wealthier kids have the resources and the educated parents that they make better use of their time when they're outside of school. So they have more hours of learning in a year – than what poor kids have, because poor kids actually unlearn what they learn in the, in the school year during the summer. So they spend more time reviewing the next year than mm-hmm. moving on to the, the next subject matter. And then the wealthier children get cumulative advantage over years, which is why they can't catch up. Mm-hmm. You know, speaking from personal experience, um, because I immigrated to this country, um, I came to the country, and I was in one public school, which wasn't the worst public school, but they didn't have emphasis on ESOL, um, you know, um, English learning um, classes for um, kids who are immigrants. And that's, like, a big thing here in South Florida. They have ESOL for kids who, you know, um, come from non-English-speaking countries. And this school didn't do that. But I was still able to pass the first grade here because, I, you know, I always got really, I was always really good at math and other subjects. I knew my colors and blah, blah, blah. But then the next year I was in another school, and they said, hold on, she already did a year school here, and she still can't read in English. And, you know, they're like, no, we can't do this. Where she's going to have to repeat the first grade. And, you know, my mother was like, why, why, why? I was like, if she doesn't catch up by second grade, she's never going to catch up. And, you know, I hated it for years that I was held back, but, it was the best thing they could have done for me because at that point, you know, I learned to speak English quickly. I, I watched television and I memorized everything that they said. But 
I still couldn't read in English. And it wasn't until I could read in English that I realized all that I was missing out on. And it wasn't very long before I realized, you know, what a favor they'd done by making sure that I could read at my grade level before moving me to the next grade. That's one of the problems wow. with the Hispanic community. That what? That that the language barrier. Um mm-hmm. like that oftentimes they have they get the jobs that they get because it requires you to have minimal communication with people that speak English. So all the jobs that uh, Mexicans flood into, um, they are at a distinct disadvantage and they're held there, kind of in a permanent underclass because of the language barriers. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I yeah. said, I learned to speak English quickly because, again, I was a young child. I was exposed to TV. I was in school. But I understand now, especially knowing the kind of person I am today, I'm one of those people who if I can't do something well, at the first few times, I'm going to get frustrated in doing it. And if I had been allowed to go on to the second grade and third grade and fourth grade and I was always behind in reading, I would have eventually probably lost interest in it. You know, and I think that's 100% true because I have that same situation. Like, I, I struggle in math. I, it's one of my hardest subjects. I struggle with school in general. I won't even lie to you guys. I was never a good student. I'm not the smart one. I was never the smart one. Um and one of the things that I, I struggled with the most was, what did you say? I said, I can't tell. You seem pretty smart to me. I don't uh, know. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I struggled, education-wise, I struggled a lot. And I think a lot of it, and don't get me, what's funny is I actually did great up until third grade. I was never really a great student, but I, I was ahead because I went to a private school up until third grade, and a private Christian school, no less, and then I went to a public school in, while I was still in third grade, and it, I completely fell behind. Like, I didn't understand anything. It's funny because I was ahead. The teacher was like, oh, you're great. You're smart. You know how to read all this stuff. And I was in the highest reading group. But then uh, somewhere along the line, I got lost. I didn't I – didn't, I, I don't know if they, they didn't move me up fast enough or they weren't – I don't know what happened. Somehow I got lost, and I ended up falling behind, although math was always my hardest subject. And I think that if it had been taught to me earlier – and, and and people sat with me and went over all those kind of, I, it, would, it wouldn't have been such a struggle. And I had it's still such a huge gap for me, and I don't really know how to fix that. Like I, I've never learned how to factor. Now this is how horrible public education is. I went all the way through high school. I only passed math in a regular semester once. I got a, and I was with a D. Oh wow! I failed. I failed almost every single semester of high school math. Though you know how I got out of that school. I went to what the equivalent of what is summer school for year-round schools, and I went to, like I, said, I went to one of the worst high schools in in the in the city of LA. But um, they passed me because I went to. If you go to summer school or intercession in the hood, they just say right, they look to see if you're a gang member. If you're not a gang member, they give you a fucking A. And guess what? An A averages with the F that I got in the previous semester, and it comes out to a C. So <laughs> that's how I made it out of high school. I still can't do math. I'm 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 really slow. I had a similar experience. Well, was, math was my worst subject. Are you guys serious? Absolute worst subject. Yeah, math. Yeah. Math was my worst subject because um, I got onto it late. Um, I'm yeah, that, <laughs> I, that's that's why I'm about to explain. That was so shocked. <laughs> math was my absolute worst subject um, when I got to high school because it wasn't that I was, I was a smart kid whose life and interest distracted him from school. I didn't see mm. it as a I – didn't, I didn't want to participate in the school system, right, because I didn't want to do homework if I thought I knew the material and I skipped straight to the test 
in the class to where the homework is 30% of your grade sort of thing. Mm. But in any case, my whole thing with math is that when I graduated from high school or whatever, mm. I wanted these career options that required math, and I was embarrassed because my counterparts, they, they knew it left and right, and I had gotten left behind. So I went to college. I'm like, all right, man, I'm about to do the hard, I'm about to do pick the major that was based on my hardest subject because I'm about to give them fifty thousand dollars. And if I give them that kind of money, they need to be able to teach me anything. So I had mm. to play catch up because I studied. I started. Uh, I went to computer science first, then I went to electrical engineering. So I said, you know what? I'm gonna go all the way. I'm gonna take every single math class that I can take in college that won't give me a math major. And mm. because I put myself in that trial by fire, um, I ended up getting through it. But the problem with that was I was coming up from behind, so my counterparts, they were a lot farther than me. Like, I'm, I work in a lab now because I'm, I'm in research and development. I'm across to my colleagues, my white colleagues. And they were asking their parents what a quark and a lepton was at seven. And I'm thinking, like, damn. So in the lab now, you can't tell, but... I can't help but think, and it, it speaks to my experience as a black male, sure, I can catch up to you. It's just the principle that I know I have to work harder to do it, and I don't feel like I should have to. I just feel like I, it shouldn't have to be that hard for me. You know what I, I mean? I'm going to explain to you guys why I was so shocked at what you said. Um, my first school that I went to was in Haiti. Haiti, as soon as your child can walk and talk and they're potty trained, you can put them in school. Um, and... I could do mm. basic multiplication before I got to the United States. Um, math was always you, my you, easiest subject. Wait, you could do multiplication in first grade? Yeah, I could do oh, multiplication. Wow. But that's how I passed first grade, not really knowing how to read English. Um, I knew my colors, I knew my shapes, and I could, mul- I could multiply. I finished college-level math, all, of, all that my school had to offer before I actually graduated high school. Like, in Haiti, math is such a big deal. You have the people that can afford private school, and I went to a private school, and then you have the people who live close enough to go to a public school. If you, if you say to, the, especially an old school Haitian, you say something like, um, they, like they'll tell you to multiply something or divide something in your head, and you say, I can't, or I need a calculator, you, you might have said that, but what they hear is, I didn't go to school. Oh, wow. It's completely different. It's everyone can do. Well, I, you know what? I'm it's sorry. It's the exact I opposite. In, left, and I wanna, like that, too. I, I have a few minutes left, and I kind of want to get to these topics really quickly because um, it's pretty much the end of the, the show. Um, but I do want to get into the beauty contest conversation. Um, so there are two stories regarding beauty contests. I'm sure you guys have heard about Nina Davuluri, who was represents uh, the U.S. now for Miss America. She won Miss America, but because she is of Indian descent, there was a lot of backlash, a lot of racist things hurled her. And according to Fox News, of course, she doesn't represent American values. And I, when I heard this, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm not the biggest advocate for pageants, but I still felt like this was a good reminder that assimilation isn't real. <laughs> at least for this is how I looked at it. And do you think that when these kind of stories come out, where basically people say, "Look, she, this person doesn't even represent American values," and this isn't even this isn't the person who's African American or black. This is the person who's Indian. Uh, she has dark skin, so therefore she doesn't represent American values. They kept calling her Muslim, but she isn't. Um, do you just like things like the service reminders that you know? They were talking uh, shit like that in India too about mm-hmm. her. Did you read that article? Because yeah, India, they I have a caste system, and she's too dark. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not 
surprised. Yeah, I'm they're not saying, surprised. you know, they were trashing why did you make it to the U.S. to crown a dark um, Indian woman? Because they've never had a Miss India that was dark-skinned. Um, because it's right. Exactly. So yeah. India, right. they, they, they just as racist. Well, they're not racist, <laughs> but they're you know, I, I, yeah. I used to watch, when I, growing up, I used to watch, because I, I don't know why, on weekends, we didn't have cable, so I would watch the most random things on TV. And there was this Bollywood show, that like public access type show that would come on TV on some of those channels that no one could actually find. I don't know how I found it, but it was a Bollywood type show. And I would watch it all the time. And, and it was funny because I, I had never really seen any Indian people in real life, because I mean, I was in South Central LA, and everybody was much black Latino. And so, when I was at college, you meet all these dark-skinned Indian people. And it's like it's a huge um, uh, international studies program that they have with India. And so, I'd, I had never seen dark-skinned Indians before, because I'd always seen them on TV. And that was a shock to me. I, I, it's interesting that, that what rep, what they represent in their media is pretty much similar. It's these very light, very very light skinned uh, Indian women and men who perform. Like those are the ones who get the roles. And the few dark skinned ones that that they had in certain in certain uh, films or whatever, they were often uh, like evil or dirty or bad. Like they were never positive. They were never lead characters. Yeah, or poor. They were, they were never always considered characters. the untouchables in their in their own society. The yeah, that's exactly Indians what it's called. The yeah. untouchable class. They yeah. were the Dravidian. They're they're the Dravidians. There are, there are a few people in that cast. It's not just the dark skin, but also like widows are considered untouchable. Um, eunuchs. Like there, there's a whole mm-hmm. group of well, people. Well, the actual like the actual cast, like their caste system, you're born into certain castes. Uh, yeah. In, in, right. In, in, right. And that. The, the dark the dark skinned people were considered like born into that lower class and it was their punishment for whatever they did in their past lives like it was it was like you know it's it, 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 it runs really used deep to oppress people and and you like that's just you know what I mean it's another example of that but I'm then. sure the British invasion had nothing to do with that and the French invasion had nothing to do with that <laughs> no, that no they, they've they always no 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 I watched no, that that was that has something to do with it to some degree, but at the same time, there there was a history of that before. In fact, it was a yeah, yeah. great documentary. I know there is in South Florida. We have a huge Asian and Southeast Asian community, and the way that it works is people that are dark are considered the peasant class. That dark skin is a trademark of being poor and having to labor and work in the outdoors. Keeping your skin mm-hmm. fair is a symbol of your nobility, your lineage, or how, just how much money you right. have. You don't need to labor like that. I don't need to work and have rough hands. I mean, that, that like was the case in Europe, too. I mean, that was also a similar thing. It was like, that's why you've got a lot of the old pictures of the wealthy. They were always really pasty and white and fat or, or heavier. It's Whereas now, now it's like, yes, yeah, it's a very yeah, I can afford to eat. Yay. <laughs> with um with the Indi- with uh Indians though and with Hinduism in particular this this runs like thousands and thousands of years because this is this yep. was actually something I studied um because I was a re- one of my majors in college was religion and um this runs really deep basically the original Indi- uh Indians had you know their own religion and they were invaded by the Aryans they were invaded by a group um by white people, basically, um, who then came and 
changed their re- religion and added the essentially added the caste system. Like developed like what we know as Hinduism is really kind of a blend of uh, the original indigenous religion uh, mixed with uh, the added elements of their conquerors that happened like thousands mm-hmm. of years ago. And it was a caste system. What did you say? I was, I was just like asking myself, like, how many times have these people been invaded? Um, well, every country has been invaded at least a few times. There is no spot on earth, save for Antarctica and Siberia, that hasn't been invaded by somebody else at least twice. I, I guess my experience is different than Vita's because living in South Florida, you see different ethnic groups. And when I was growing up, I went to school with dark-skinned, Indian, Guyanese, Trini kids. When I started watching Bollywood flicks, and all I saw were light-skinned Indians, I'm like, you know, I saw the whitewashing immediately, more clearly than I saw it in American media, because mm-hmm. I'm like, these people look nothing like any Indian I've ever met in my life. And then I saw the colorism right. within Indians that I interacted with that I went to school with. And it wasn't just them. I see in the Latino community, too. You know, it's not just black people with this, that are color-struck and have this hang-up. All those black people oh, think no. it's just it's, <laughs> it's not. All of it is That's biological, like too, that. FYI, just to make it bring science into it. Well, Part of it is biological. A small well, portion of it is. Real quick. The, uh, there's a really good documentary, and I, it's called Shadism, I believe, and it's done by a, a young person, um, a, a girl, who interviews uh, different girls who are different races or different uh, nationalities, and they all talk about their experiences. It was a black girl, a Latina girl, another Southeast Asian girl, and it's really it's really an interesting document. It's called Shadism. I, it's on YouTube, I believe. I really suggest you guys look at that. But um, we are actually right out of time the last couple of minutes, and we could spend like one minute talking about this because I-, I wanted to talk about it, about the French, France, they banned child beauty contests, and I think that's a great thing, and we should bear in my opinion. I don't know if it'll happen because people here would lose their shit, but um, <laughs> I agree with you. what do you guys think? Should we ban them I here? Think, oh, yes. Yes, it's about the, time. The over-sexualization of children seems like a no-brainer, but hey, that's just me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but Tyler and Tiara, I think I, yeah. I I will support any any adult woman or man's right to enter a pageant. That's your right. But um, this it's abuse, it's exploitation, and a lot of these parents are living vicariously through these children, and that's just that's another exactly. yeah. psychological dysfunction on its own. Right, exactly. and a lot of them they're like these crazy. I mean, I've seen Tyler and Tiara's. And that's a really bizarre show to watch because you watch these kids and the parents are like, oh, she loves it. She just loves this. And the kid is screaming and crying. Oh, what a pain. Leave me alone. And it's like, oh, but she just loves it. Or the kids like it because they, they're they like, oh, I get a toy or something after. I've heard one girl was happy. She wanted to win the money because she wanted to buy a bunch of cheese. She likes eating cheese. She said, my mom said if I do the pageant, I win some money and I'm going to get cheese. <laughs> yeah, I saw one little girl that did it because she wanted to raise money to buy a pet cow. Um, so yeah, she had like her 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 eyes set on winning a pet cow. She'd do anything to get the pet cow. But then right after what I saw an episode where a woman entered her three month old into the pageant. She'd entered the shot into a pageant um, while she was still pregnant. And then when the pageant finally rolled around, she carries her three-month-old on stage and waves her her hand for her. Like, it doesn't get any more sick than that. 
The child can't but, but, even oh, walk. That's not unusual. I've seen that. Like they have, they have baby pageants. They have pageants for babies that can't even walk. Worse right. than that that's, is, it teaches girls. It 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 te- give it, it almost gives little girls old software when women across the world are evolving. You you are essentially teaching this girl the old model that all the woman has to do will be beautiful and things will just happen for her. Now, that may be true for a large portion of women in society, but for the overwhelming majority of women, that's not true. And it actually brings more problems than rewards most times. It's not even a perpetuation of the beautiness, but it also perpetuates other stereotypes, like a woman must always be impeccably dressed. A beautiful woman always has makeup on. She's always tanned. Her hair is always She's always smiling. She always smiles, and she's always silent. She's always, um, you know, silent until she's spoken to. Right. She's wax fruit, baby. Until, enter- <laughs> until she becomes an entertainment showpiece. So with that, we're going to go. White. I have to close because we have like 30 seconds. But I do appreciate everyone who calls in. I appreciate everyone on the line. Curtis, uh, who else called? Mario called in earlier. Diana, appreciate all everyone who called in. I want to thank my co-host, and co-producer, Emily. Thank, thank, thank you. Thank you. It was great guest, to all of you. And our guests. Anthony Springer Jr. and MC Brooks. Special thanks to Kim for this opportunity. I also want to give a special thanks to shout out to the Five Theory Collective and Black Skeptics LA. I'm your host, Vita Star. Add me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter under the name Vita Star with two R's. And I cannot wait to listen in on Rena Rose's show. She is going to talk about the Hidden Colors documentary. Is it his pseudo history or is it actual history? And I want to listen to that. That comes up the 21st on Saturday. So thank you, everyone, again, and I hope you guys have a great evening. Bye. Bye.